All right, well, welcome everybody. My name is Brad, one of the pastors here. Glad that you're here tonight. This is going to be a doozy of a night on our tough questions, and we are going to be handling tonight um, some issues that uh, are, are, are very much debated in popular culture and that at times um, have gray areas and, and, and areas where faithful Christians may have differing opinions. And so um, tonight we want to exercise charitability and graciousness and a spirit of humility as we engage these issues. And also, uh, just, just to help you swell with confidence as to who is who's presenting tonight, you're, this is a, we're going to be talking about medical issues a little bit tonight. And I'm a guy who, um, my wife is actually a physician. She is a pediatrician. I don't know if she's in the room or not. I saw her earlier. But um, when we first met, a pediatrician is a, a children's doctor. It's an important phrase, that, that Latin word pedia, meaning children. When we first met, I was a lieutenant in the Army here at Fort Benning 20 years ago, and she was a third-year medical student. And I asked her what type of doctor she wanted to be, and she said, well, I want to be a pediatrician. And the first thing that ran through my mind was, she wants to be a foot doctor? Like, not that there's anything wrong with foot doctors, but I just, that was a strange thing for a young lady to want to do and be. And so I didn't even know the difference between the root Latin words podiatry and pediatrics. Okay, so that's where I was 20 years ago. And to, to make it even worse, uh, we have four children, and in our, our third child, um, Arabella, our only daughter, uh, my wife, I'm, she'll probably, I'm glad she's maybe not in the room right now because I'm sharing medical history here, but she was uh, on bed rest for uh, the last three months of Arabella's um, pregnancy. There she is walking in the room right now. And she was on bed rest because, I'm going over my wonderful medical credentials, babe. And she was on bed rest because she, her, her cervix evidently was very thin. Up to that point, now I was, I was a pastor of a church, a graduate of college, a father, and you know, so, you know, making it in the world to some degree, and I did not know what a cervix was. In fact, I didn't even know that I didn't have a cervix. I, <laughs> in my mind, I thought a cervix was like the pelvic bone. And I thought, oh my gosh, like her bones are so brittle that she has to be. And so that's the background of the guy that's talking to you right now. And if you've been around at Crosspoint for a while, you also know that I medically am hoping for this evidently impossible phenomenon called spontaneous combustion. That's the way I want to go out when I'm 80, preaching my last sermon. I want to spontaneously combust, which I understand is not possible, but I'm still hoping it is. So with that... Um, a couple of resources I want to point you to before we begin. Um, a couple books. One, and this is a, a really a much of a source book for what I went I, as our prepared for our notes tonight is an excellent resource called God, Marriage, and Family, written by Andreas Kostenberger with David Jones. It's really a comprehensive look at just good theology regarding marriage, um, the issues that we're going to talk about tonight, and a whole host of other issues. It's just an excellent resource. Anybody like to take this book and read it? Truman, right there. You're about to get married. That would be a wonderful book for you to read and, um, and learn. And then another book that is excellent. We're going to be talking a little bit about um, birth control, artificial reproductive technology, the difficulties of infertility tonight. Here's a wonderful book, um, very, very helpful resource called The Infertility Companion. I read a couple chapters this week. Um, Wayne recommends it as well. Uh, this Dr. William 
Kutcher it was uh, at Southern Seminary and is also a medical doctor, co-written by a lady named Sandra Glan. Um, and this is a really helpful book f- for couples that are struggling with infertility. So what I'm going to do is, I know that may be sensitive for you to just raise your hand and say, that's me. If you would like this book, um, you can come up afterwards and I'll, I'll get you this book. And if, you, if there's more than one of you, then we'll order a couple copies for you. That's a very helpful book. All right, well, let's get into the, to the, uh, to the outline. And before I do that, let me pray and ask the Lord to, to help us. Oh, Lord, thank you for your grace to us tonight, for, for just giving us breath and life and uh, your grace, giving us your word, giving us each other, giving us the Bible. Uh, thank you for the common grace of, of medicine. Thank you for the Christian doctors that are in this congregation, in this room, and we even thank you, Lord, for how you work through medical technology and physicians and, and all of those things, uh, even as you mediate it through people that do not know you. It is indeed your common grace to us. Even as Robert preached this last Sunday on, on the common grace that you give mankind through even giving him wisdom on how to order society, you, you've certainly given us much grace in medicine. But we know that mankind is sinful, and oftentimes we turn this common grace into uh, sinful purposes. And so we, as your people, need much wisdom to know uh, what the balance is between um, appropriate use of technology and medicine and the grace that you've given us and uh, faithfulness to what it, means to be a, what it means to be a biblical Christian. So, so these are difficult issues. Um, and Lord, I, I feel particularly a sort of out of my league um, talking about this. And so I pray that you'd help me. And if there's things that I say that are just not helpful or flat out wrong, I pray that you'd give, give uh, my audience wisdom and just let those wrong words fall to the ground, be forgotten. Anything that's true, helpful. Lord, I pray that it'd stick fast. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, let's get into it. What should Christians think about birth control is our first question. What should they think about artificial reproductive technologies and then embryonic cell stem cell research? So the first there on, on the front page there, birth control. Before we can really engage that question, we need to just kind of do some theology about when does life begin? And I think biblically the answer to that question is that life begins in the mind of God. I think it even begins you know, before, before anything physical happens. And I think we see that in Scripture. So in Psalm 139, what Paul just sang for us. Psalm 139, starting in verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. This is David writing uh, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. You saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. So not only is God intricately involved physically in the making of every human being, but there's this foreknowledge of God about a person before that physiological process even begins. And we see that even more directly in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 8, where God comes to the prophet 
And he says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And so uh, life begins in the mind of God. There's a few other verses there that you can read for your reference that we won't take the time to read. But the biblical answer for a Christian is that life begins even before anything physiological happens. It begins in the, in the mind of God. But then there is this physiological process And there's these two words that I want us to understand the difference between and realize that some of you may know all of this and this may be very elementary for you and some of you may be like me and you don't know the difference between pediatrics and podiatry. So we're kind of going lowest common denominator here. Fertilization and implantation. What is the difference between the two and when should we consider which of those two is the beginning of life physiologically? Fertilization occurs when a sperm burrows into an egg, and at that point, a baby's gender and genes are set. So that's the moment of conception, right there at that moment. The fertilized egg then begins to dividing into many cells and moves through the fallopian tube over several days and eventually is implanted to the lining of the uterus. And so that process of fertilization happens at, at conception, And then there's a several-day process where then that now fertilized egg attaches itself to the uterine wall. Biblically, and you see that sentence in italics there, it seems clear that we must consider this most initial stage of fertilization as the moment of conception when life begins in an earthly sense. So there are some people medically that would reject that, and they would say that no, not until the fertilized egg is implanted on the uterine wall or until after the eight-week process, uh, eight weeks into the process, would they consider it? So there's all sorts of medical opinions there, but I think biblically, um, and we could read many more verses other than just Psalm 139 and Job 1, 5, uh, aside from just in the mind of God and in his you know, sovereign providence and foreknowledge of us, uh, physiologically, physically, I think it's clear that the beginning of the process is when the sperm... Um, meets the egg and fertilization happens. And at that point, throughout the rest of this talk, we're going to be using the term fertilized egg or embryo. But I think we stand on pretty solid biblical ground by saying that is just a very, 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 very young human. At that moment, all all the the gender set, all the genes are set, um, still not completely formed, but that that is, I think, biblically, clearly a human being. So then, that leads us into uh, a discussion about, now that we have that established, that life begins at conception, and by conception we mean the fertilization of the egg, then let's get into this discussion about the legitimacy of birth control in general before we start to talk about various methods, because there are Christians who are um, on different sides of the, of, of the camp, sort of theologically, on this issue of whether or not Christians should even use birth control at all. So some Christians believe that every act of marital sexual intercourse must be open to conception. In other words, no um, attempts to prevent whatsoever. Drawing from Genesis 1.28, um, which says that we should be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth, which we've just gone over a few weeks ago in Genesis, uh, which identifies procreation as the primary end of the marital union. And then, of course, Psalm 127 describes children as a blessing, a heritage from the Lord, uh, people that... It put an emphasis on those verses, conclude that Christians should not attempt to prevent pregnancy in any way, and that any um, coming together of a husband and wife should be open to the possibility of procreation. 
people, uh, so m- many Catholics would fall into this camp. Um, and, and, and then uh, I think more in the Protestant world, maybe you've heard the words uh, or the sort of the, the terminology of open womb proponents or quiver full, that quiver full coming from Psalm 127. People that would um, have, uh, be passionate about that would sort of um, identify themselves along, along those lines. Other Christians, and this would certainly be the majority of Protestant Christians, would see that in addition to procreation, God intends for marital union to meet other secondary needs, such as companionship, sexual pleasure, fidelity, etc., modeling uh, the gospel, Ephesians 5, the purposes of marriage. Thus, while it seems clear that Christian couples should seek to have children, it does not necessarily follow that every sexual encounter needs to be open to conception. And I would venture to say that a vast majority of the people in this room maybe um, would probably fall into that camp. I know that there may be people that are very passionate about those things, and the purpose of tonight is really not to kind of get into that debate. If you're really passionate about that, we can talk about that, and um, that, that's a wonderful thing. But I realize that that's, that's kind of a, a, a big theological debate that I, I think is kind of beyond the purposes of this discussion. Um, so that's, know though that that is, that is an issue out there, okay? I'm going to take the second approach now that, it, it, that Christians, that some form of birth control is le- a legitimate option for Christians, um, and therefore then that brings us into this second set of questions, which is letter C there, is okay, if, if to some degree Christian couples should seek to have children, how many children? We'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, and it's okay to limit the number of children. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, but then considering that, that it's not necessarily a biblical mandate that every um, instance of sexual union between a husband and wife, every encounter needs to be open to the possibility of, of, of procreation. Then, given that, if that's our assumption, what are the acceptable methods of birth control? Realizing that some of you may disagree with that, and that's fine. So, acceptable and unacceptable forms of birth control. Number one, acceptable forms are only those that are contraceptive. In other words, that prevent the fertilization of an egg. They prevent the very earliest physiological action there. So, by contraception, we're not talking about implantation to the uterine wall. We're talking about the fertilization of an egg. So, remember... Because by the time an egg is fertilized, in those few days there, while it's moving through the fallopian tube, uh, you know, trying to attach to the uterine wall, we're, we're considering that a very, very young human. So conception is fertilization. So only those that prevent the fertilization of an egg, meaning that they, well, I, re- I wrote it down there, that prevent the conception or fertilization of an egg. This includes abstinence. And I just put this in parentheses because we have a young congregation, and I don't know that many of you are single this is the only legitimate option for those that are not married, okay? So um, if you are, you know, we can talk more about that, but I don't care if he loves you. I don't care if he prays before he eats. I don't care if he's given you a ring and you have a date six months from now. The only legitimate expression for sexual... Um, our sexuality is, is in the one flesh union between a husband and a wife, okay? So when the Bible talks about sexual immorality or fornication, it's talking about sex outside of the one flesh union between a husband and wife. So abstinence is the only legitimate option for those not married. 
recognizing that we all sin um, and that there is grace in the Lord, but that I think it's, it's helpful to make that clear. The rhythm or calendar method, um, I don't think I need to explain that. Looking at a woman's ov- ovulation cycle and determining when would be the least likely time um, to, to, uh, for her to get pregnant. I think many Catholics use this. Many, pro- many Protestants do. I think we understand that. And then barrier methods, diaphragm, cervical cap, condoms, and spermicides. Generally, these are acceptable forms of contraception, preventing the fertilization of an egg amongst conservative um, Protestants who um, feel that some form of birth control is legitimate. Unacceptable forms. Any form that induces an abortion even very early on. So remember, uh, we think a a fertilized egg is is a very young human. Since from a biblical standpoint, life begins at fertilization, it follows that any termination of a fertilized egg should be considered an abortifacient. And that's just a word meaning it causes the miscarriage or aborting of a pregnancy. Uh, IUD, an inner uterine device, its primary function, this is an unacceptable, I think, from a Christian's perspective, um, form of birth control, because its primary function is to create an unstable environment for the already fertilized egg to implant onto the uterine wall. Also, uh, what is popularly known as the morning after pill, RU486, and I think there are several other maybe pharmaceutical companies that have different forms of this, so RU486 is maybe not the only name of this particular type of drug, and this drug works to directly prohibit the continuation of the pregnancy or the already fertilized egg by blocking the body's natural secretion of progesterone, the vital hormone that prepares the uterus to receive a fertilized egg. So it's making a hostile environment to to essentially starve um, the the fertilized egg so it it can't attach. What about sterilization? This would be tubal occlusion, commonly called you know, tying of the tubes or vasectomy. And aren't you glad that I don't have the whiteboard out today drawing pictures? <laughs> Just not, not going there, not going to do that. Um, now, this is a little bit more of a gray area. I think some conclude that physical alteration uh, involves improper violation of one's body as a temple of the, of the Holy Spirit. And while other Christians consider it to be a viable option after they've prayerfully submitted their desires to the Lord, and there are so many factors that may be involved in a couple's decision to do this. Maybe, you know, maybe there's been a, a bunch of miscarriages. Maybe there's health considerations with a woman. Maybe, you know, there's been all sorts of... So I think it's... I, wanna, I, wanna, I want us to be careful. Again, some of you may have very strong um, stances or views about, about whether or not somebody should permanently surgically alter their body in this way, maybe after having a few children. But I think we should be very careful about sort of making a blanket statement because there's just so many different scenarios that can go in there. But that, know that that's sort of a special set um, that, again, we could talk about. And if you want to go deeper into, we can, we can talk later. What about now, and I think this is where I, I want us to kind of settle in for a little bit because I, I, honestly I didn't, I mean, I kind of knew this, but I didn't really know this um, as well as, as maybe I should have until this week reading. What about the pill? Maybe the most common and widely accepted form of birth control in our culture. Although widely accepted, the acceptability of the pill is under much question by Christian ethicists. There are two basic categories that come in both oral and injectable form. And now, friends, realize I'm sort of walking out on kind of a plank here, realizing that, 
you know, this is, I, I'm, I'm outside of my depth here a little bit. So we've got David Subic as an internal medicine doctor here. I don't know if John Fott's here. My wife is not an OBGYN. I don't know if we have any OBGYNs in the room. But realize I'm walking out on a plank here a little bit. So um, if I completely butcher this, um, David, maybe just gently raise your hand and say, nice try, kid. But there are two basic categories that come in both oral, oral and injectable form. Combined contraceptives that contain both estrogen and progestin and progestin-only contraceptives. Now, both types of the pill work by employing the same three basic mechanisms of action. And so what a mechanism of action is, is it's the way that a drug works on the, <laughs> on the body. Reynolds counts. You know, I used to be... Reynolds, a pharmaceutical agent, and I, did for, I was for a little while. And, I, and so anyways, a joke between us. But a mechanism of action... Come on, Reynolds. A mechanism of action is the way a drug works on the body, okay? And these both categories of these types of pill, the pill both have the same three mechanisms of action. One, the first mechanism of action is to prevent ovulation. So um, that means, you know, obviously that's going to prevent a woman from re- releasing the eggs and, and they're, it's going to prevent fertilization, okay? And that would be, that would be a, I think, a legitimate contraceptive preventing fertilization mechanism of action. A second mechanism of action of both sets of these of the pill is altering cervical mucus buildup, okay? I'm not really sure what that's all about, but it, it makes the uterine lining incapable, I'm sorry, it increases the difficulty of the sperm fertilizing the egg. So it is, it is preventing the meeting of the sperm and the egg. So again, that seems to be a legitimate contraceptive mechanism of action. But there's a third mechanism of action. If both of those things fail, the drug sort of has a backup way of, 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 um, of n- not allowing a birth to continue by what's called inhibiting the endometrium or uterine lining. And this makes the uterine lining incapable of supporting the life of a newly already fertilized egg. It works as a fail-safe means to control birth if the other two mechanisms do not prevent conception. Thus, this third mechanism of action, underline this sentence, this third mechanism of action is not contraceptive in nature, but abortive in that it prevents an already fertilized egg from implanting, okay? Now, granted, the uh, first two mechanisms of action of birth control pills are, are, are usually mostly effective, and I think we can conclude that a vast majority of pregnancies that are prevented by using the pill are prevented through those mechanisms of actions of the pill. But we can't say that for certain. So, so I mean, I think all of us have heard about what's called breakthrough pregnancies, right? So even if people are on the pill, you can still get pregnant. It's not 100%. Well, the point being that at times the uh, pregnancy can break through those first two and get to the third and fail. And of course, we can't know inside a woman's body which mechanism of action is actually the effective, is actually the one in, in stopping, or at this case, terminating the pregnancy. So, um, while the chances of the first two methods failing are admittedly low, there is at least a chance that at times the pill functions as an abortive agent. So, I, I would just say, um, you know, 
as a pastor, I, it, with a young couple coming to me, I would, I would just, I would just try and counsel you away from that. I think that you are, you're potentially, um, uh, at a very early age, um, creating an unstable environment to cause a fertilized egg, which remember, I think biblically, is a very young human being from being able to survive um, inside a woman's body. Any questions about that? Any questions? Going once, going twice. Okay, I know these are sensitive issues. And friends, know that if you are maybe even using one of these particular birth control methods that we went over there in the unacceptable category, know that, friends, know that, you know, there's this grace. We can work through this pastorally, all of that. And um, so, so, no, I'm not trying to, like, beat you up with anything. And we're, we're, I think, learning together. This is why we're doing this as a congregation. But, but, um, but know that uh, biblically, it seems like the evidence. Now, I will say this, that um, when you are talking to, if you're a young woman, a young couple, talking to your OBGYN, um, no, when you're asking the OBGYN, because, you know, the pharmaceutical industry is always changing and there's always maybe new drugs coming out, um, there, may, there may come a day in the near future where there is a pill that can be proven that 100% of the first two mechanism of actions are that work. And I think that would be acceptable. Um, you know, so, so these are questions. I mean, this isn't just, don't, don't just file this away and never think about it. I mean, this is something to engage your OBGYN in. But also know that when you're asking your OBGYN questions, that you need to understand what the sort of spiritual and philosophical presuppositions of that OBGYN are about when life begins. Because remember, they, they, may, they may have a different conception of what we think biblically of when life begins. And so they may not think that a, that a particular form or pill is, is abortive causing when biblically we as Christians would think it would be. So lots of, of, of uh, careful questions to think through. What about deliberate childlessness? Um, and this is couples that um, intentionally do not um, want to have children. And I think this is, this is kind of, we see more of this in our culture today. Um, with the young urban population. Um, again, I, I want to be careful about making blanket, sta- blanket statements here, um, but I will say that we do, I think, see an increasing culture of absorption that sees children as an inconvenience and a cramp on lifestyle, and I think that is not just bad. I think it's wicked. I think it's demonic and from Satan. I think it is part of the culture of death that hates children. And, and so I, I think even a sort of unassuming, self-absorbed Christian couple can kind of get caught up in this sort of seeing children as kind of an inconvenience to life. And I think that should be wholeheartedly rejected. Um, I, I want to say that maybe there's a possibility of a couple that is, um, has, has felt like the Lord is calling them into some very difficult, hostile, dangerous place on the mission field, you know, and, and they've prayerfully... Uh, felt like that, that it would just be best for them not to have children. Uh, okay, I'm, 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 I'm going to allow for, for that. Okay, fine. But I'm just saying generally the average young couple that's saying, hey, we want to go you know, live in you know, the city and have a really cool hip lifestyle and not have kids because they're an inconvenience. I, I just think that's, that's um, a terrible, terrible unbiblical, unbiblical mindset. And then about uh, you know, how, many, how many children 
a family should have, I, I, again, I think that there's freedom there. Um, I think that, that I think it, kind of in, a, in our sort of young sl- stream of the church, there seems to be a lot of emphasis on having a lot of children. I don't think that you should feel guilty if you don't have a lot of children and you have two children or one children or three children and everybody else is having four or five or six. I think, I think we need to have a lot of charitability towards one another. We don't know what the health issues are with a person. We don't know how difficult pregnancy may be, pregnancy may be on people. Um, and, and certainly we want to be an advocate for adoption, um, which we'll talk about in, in a bit. And so even couples that are struggling with infertility, um, uh, you know, adoption is a wonderful, a wonderful, um, uh, it's not, boy, go to our website and listen to Tony Carter, Tony Carter's message about adoption when he preached here on a Saturday night. Adoption is not God's plan B for, your, for a person's life. It is God sovereignly before the foundations of the earth determining that that would be the way that you would father or mother a child. And so it's a wonderful message. That's a, a wonderful thing for Christians to consider. Any questions before we move on to artificial reproductive technologies at all? Yes, Andrew. Get, let's get the mic so we, can, we are recording this. So if, if some people take you know, birth control pills mm-hmm. for um, medical reasons... Um, just to, to alter their, their hormones or whatever, um, yeah. would, at what point does that not become okay? It's a great question because like, I've heard of, so, you know, I've heard of like young ladies being prescribed it for things like acne and headaches and all that kinds of stuff and hormonal. Um, I would say off the top of my head, Andrew, I would, um, you know, I would, uh, if there's a medical reason that you know, maybe that's okay, but here's my problem with with prescribing a birth control to a, a young lady is that it just seems to sort of, maybe I'm making a terrible analogy for me, but it just seems to be almost kind of a gateway drug, you know? It just seems to kind of pave the way, and certainly a, if a Christian, you know, was, was, um, was prescribed that for some medical reason, I could see that as being legitimate. But if I were... I would be just real hesitant if I was an OBGYN as a, as a Christian, and I'm, certainly I'm not, about sort of doing that. But I, I don't know enough about the, the, the um, other um, indications of birth control pills for other reasons to really answer that question um, intelligently. So good question, though, Andrew. David, would you add anything? To, could you add anything to that? Or Yeah, yeah, yeah. Any other questions? All right. Artificial reproductive technologies or arts. Different types. Now, friends, we are, we are doing kind of a 30,000 flyover. This is a complicated, ever-changing world, okay? And so I am skimming the surface here. G- there are several more variations of technologies and procedures that go beyond the scope of this discussion or my ability to articulate them clearly. <laughs> but the two most common are intrauterine insemination, or maybe what's more commonly known of as artificial insemination. And this is the sort of straightforward and sort of easy to understand injection. It's the collection of male sperm, and then usually injected into the female uterus by a syringe, okay, hoping that that will help maybe a low sperm count or, um, you know, maybe some chemical... um, environments there that might make it difficult for the sperm to survive, kind of get them past some of those more fragile environments to where it just aids the possibility of fertilization. 
There's other variations, more breakdowns of that. Then the other category, which maybe most of us think of, is in vitro fertilization. So artificial insemination happens inside of a, of a woman's body. In vitro fertilization are eggs from a woman that have been harvested, taken outside of the woman's body, joined with sperm in the hope that many conceptions will take place. So get a bunch of eggs, a bunch of sperm, put them together, and try and create a bunch of fertilizations. These new in- embryos, and remember what an embryo is, it is a fertilized egg, which is, biblically, I think we must consider, is a very young human. These new embryos are then screened, and an attempt is made to implant as many or f- as four of the embryos into the women's uterus. This is why sometimes with in vitro fertilization, there's you know, multiple you know, twins or triplets or, or whatever, as many as four embryos into the women's uterus. The remaining embryos are, again, very young humans will then be either destroyed or frozen for use in future birthing attempts. So sometimes couples will say, let's freeze them. We've had trouble getting pregnant. We're going to do in vitro fertilization. We're going to do four this time. You know, I don't know how many, how many, I don't know what the numbers are that you would generally harvest in one sort of attempt, but let's say there's another four. We're going to freeze those four, or maybe it's a lot more than four. I don't know, but we're going to freeze this particular set and then come back at another time and, you know, thaw them and then try and implant those. Um, So the remaining embryos would then either be destroyed or frozen for future birthing attempts. But roughly, at least from this one source, this, this number may be a little high, talking to David Subic before. We don't have any OBGYNs in here. But, but know that at least some percentage, in this one source that I read in Kostenberger's book, roughly 25% of those frozen embryos will not survive the freeze and thawing process prior to the next attempt. And so again, we're talking about a fertilized egg, which is a very young human being that is then frozen and thawed. Many of them do not survive that process, or at least some of them don't survive that process. And many couples that do IVF just discard them completely. Or there's just so many that they just can't you know, logistically handle that many pregnancies. So friends, that's a problem. Because if biblically we are, um, I think, standing on very solid ground saying that that life begins at conception, we are then discarding uh, life at that, at that point. And so, um, again, uh, with lots of grace here, I think that um, that, that whole area of IVF is, is, uh, is, is something that um, really is dicey, dicey ground for Christians and, and I think should really be avoided. Again, this source and my even my knowledge of it, I'm sure it can be dated. I'm sure there's maybe more precise things happening, but any discarding of a fertilized egg is is the destroying of a very early uh, human being, um, and I think should should clearly be not an option for a Christian. Other um, forms of in, of artificial reproductive technologies, gamete intrafallopian transfer, gift, um, and then various t- uh, that the gift is is a Honestly, I read it. It was just too complicated for me to digest and and and, and um, talk to you guys about. And then various surrogacy methods, where you know maybe a, a woman's eggs, a, a, a wife's eggs, and a husband's sperm are then implanted in another woman who can bear the baby, and then are also maybe a woman donates her eggs, and, and it's artificial insemination by 
a husband, and so there's ethical things there. Um, so those are different types of reproductive technology. So some questions, and we'll pause after these questions, that Christians should ask before considering artificial reproductive technologies. Are any fertilized eggs being discarded? If the answer to that is yes, I think it is absolutely not an option for Christians because, again, you are aborting a very young human being at that point. Does this procedure respect all human beings as image bearers of God? And so just even thinking about it, even if you could, you know, like guarantee that, you know, this freezing and thawing, I mean, just even the thought of freezing and thawing a human being, you know, it could be a very dangerous. Um, even if you're going back to use all of those um, frozen embryos or to try and use that, it seems to sort of be, uh, there's, I think there's some real cloudy issues there with people being, seeing this embryo as not just a cell, but as a very young human being. Does this method respect the fidelity of the marital bond? I'm speaking specifically there about sur- surrogacy issues. Um, you know, I, I think that, um, I, I don't think it's an option for artificial insemination in another woman. I, I think, I don't think that a Christian should go that way. Again, lots of grace, lots of charitability. I'm just kind of being opinionated here, um, but uh, know my heart in this if you want to talk further in it. And then I think a question that Christians need to ask themselves is, what is my heart in wanting to pursue the use of these technologies if a couple is wrestling with infertility? And let me, let me say here, let me just be um, just very, as, as gracious and kind as I can be. There is a balance. There, there, is, there are lines that intersect there between the righteous desire to have your own children biologically and then somewhere along at that point, that pursuit, I think, can, if it's not brought before the Lord and under wise biblical counsel and the authority of scriptures, at times tip over into really self-absorption and idolatry. And I want to say that with every bit of gentleness and compassion to people that are wrestling with infer- infertility. But friends, know that your manhood and your womanhood is not defined by your ability to biologically procreate. That, that is not what it means ultimately to be human. Just like you're not defined by your ability to get a man or a woman. Jesus was the most fulfilled and satisfied human being ever, and he was single, never had sex, never procreated physiologically on, on earth. Paul, the same way. So um, I think that... In sort of the self-absorbed culture that we live in, where it's kind of all about us and our wedding story and our baby story and Facebook and, and just all about us, I think we need to be just careful and aware that at times, I'm not saying that the pursuit of fertility treatment is just, you know, is, is all of it is idolatry. I'm just saying no, friends, that we, we, we are swimming in a culture that is, is really awash in, in idolatry. And so are, are some, um, some treatments and some things, consultation, drugs, maybe to help um, thicken a woman's uh, uterine wall and all of that, is that something Christians can do? I, I think probably so. But just know that we want to check our hearts, and what, what is my heart in wanting to pursue the use of this technology? Okay, I think I've said enough there. Any questions? Any questions? Yes, Katie. Oh, let's wait for the mic right up here. Katie, raise your hand real high. I, 
is your viewpoint on embryo adoption? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I, I think, uh, so, so the issue is, because we're gonna, we're, I was going to mention that here in just a second, about embryonic stem cell research. Um, I'll tell you what embryonic stem cells are in a second, but basically embryonic st- stem cells are, are stem cells from discarded um, uh, uh, embryos or fertilized eggs. And so there's a whole movement of people that um, are, are these frozen, discarded, aren't going to be used, um, fertilized eggs. And there's people that are wanting to adopt these children or adopt these eggs. Um, I, 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 see, I see what I think some Christians are trying to do there. And um, I, I guess I would need to think more, more deeply about that than being implanted in an, you know, another woman's body, kind of thinking about the ethics of that. But at its core... I, without giving it a whole lot of thought or doing too much reading on it, I think it springs from a real respect of the dignity of human life. Does that make sense? Yeah. Does that answer your question? Yeah. yeah. So I would, without having given it much thought and thinking about the implications of then that embryo that's been discarded and is frozen somewhere, being then implanted in another person, um, my first instincts would say that I would, I would be inclined to posture myself towards seeing that as being a sort of a heart of, you know, seeing this as an image bearer of God. But I want to be cautious because I haven't thought too deeply about that. But that's a wonderful question. Yeah. Um, any other questions? Okay, so let's get into embryonic stem cell research, which is going to kind of get a little bit more, digging into what Katie's talking about there and how that situation comes about. Or well, not necessarily, but that that comes about through IVF, um, uh, fertilized eggs being frozen and then not just given away. But what is embryonic stem cell stem cell research? What are stem cells, and why are they important to research? The human body has many different types of cells. Most have a particular type and specific function. Stem cells are distinguished from other types of cells by two important characteristics. First, they're unspecialized cells capable of renewing themselves through cell division, sometimes after long periods of inactivity. And second, under certain conditions, they can be induced to become tissue-specific or organ-specific cells with special functions. In some organs, stem cells can divide to repair and replace worn out or damaged tissue. So it's a very small subset of human cells which seem to have this sort of adaptive, mutative uh, capacity. They provide a valuable tool for studying both normal and abnormal cellular processes. By learning how they differentiate or change and become specialized, scientists hope to gain a better understanding of how cells in general work and and what can go wrong. So they're a very valuable scientific tool. They may also prove to be very valuable sources of transplantable cells and tissues for repair and regeneration. Potentially, they could be used to produce new and differentiated cells that are damaged because of disease, such as Parkinson's or injury, such as spinal cord damage. So very, very important medically, you know, kind of a new burgeoning field. But now, what are embryonic stem cells? These are stem cells that have been taken out of an embryo as opposed to an adult. 
Uh, and a, a, again, a very young human being. An embryo is a term for humans in the stage of development between fertilization and the end of the eighth week of gestation, after which the being is referred to medically as a fetus. But of course, biblically, we would say that at fertilization, a person is a human. Thus, embryonic stem cells are cells of a very young human. So then, why is there controversy over using embryonic stem cells as research? Because the process of obtaining these stem cells leads to the destruction of the embryo from which the cells are taken. Okay, so David Subic just told me, if we were to take stem cells from you and me, we could just, we could just like, you wouldn't have to kill us to get cells from us for scientific research. But, but an embryo, you can't take cell, stem cells from an embryo without dis- destroying it. And again, remember, that's an That's a human being. Because human life begins at conception, embryo destruction is immoral because it is the destruction of a human being. Now listen to this sentence. All embryonic stem cells in use today come from discarded embryos resulting from IVF. Okay? So um, all this sort of scientific desire and money to use these embryonic stem cells comes from these discarded human beings. Thus, Christians should not support embryonic stem cell re- research that obtains the cells from intentionally destroying, intentionally destroyed very young human beings. I didn't have room to put this on our notes, but let me just read you a couple notes from an article from um, the uh, Southern Baptist Convention's Ethics and Religious Liberty Con- uh, Commission, very helpful organization led by Russ Moore um, in Nashville and Washington, D.C., did an article on this. Doesn't the government ban the use of funding embryonic stem cell research is a question that they are asked on this website. Does, so doesn't the government ban embryonic stem cell research? Research using, the answer is research using cells taken from destroyed embryos, embryos is illegal in many countries, including Germany, Austria, Ireland, Italy, Portugal, and New Zealand. Most, most African and South American countries also have some form of restriction or ban. However, In the United States, there are no restrictions on research and only minimal restrictions on government funding of embryo-destructive research. In 1995, Congress attached language to an appropriations bill prohibiting the use of any federal funds for research that destroys or seriously endangers human embryos or creates them for research purposes. This provision, known as the Dickey Amendment, has been attached to the Health and Human Services Appropriations Bill each year since 1996. However, in 2009, President Obama issued an executive order that lifted all restrictions against federal funding of stem cell research. The courts ruled that the language of the Dickey Amendment prohibited the use of government funds to directly destroy an embryo, but it could not prevent the funding of research projects using embryonic stem cell research. So the government can't directly do it, but it can fund projects that that do. And so effectively, this executive order by President Obama is sort of removing that restriction that's been in place since 1995 in the form of the Dickey Amendment. So we're, we're, unlike um, Germany, Austria, Ireland, Italy, Portugal, New Zealand, and many African and South American countries, seem to sort of be opening the way to embryonic stem cell research. And here's the kicker is that the assumption, you would think, well, oh, okay, aren't embryonic stem cells, in other words, the stem cells of an early, early baby, more effective in scientific research than adult stem cells? Because we get this sort of, you know, pure cell, you know, maybe more pure. Aren't they more effective than adult stem cells 
in scientific use in treating diseases? The answer to that question is no. In fact, just the opposite is true. There are more than 70 conditions currently being treated with adult stem cells and zero conditions being treated with embryonic stem cells. But yet, the political and scientific pressure is to dump all of this money into the destruction and harvesting of embryonic stem cells when it hasn't been proven to be near as effective as adult stem cells. Friends, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to exegete that culturally and say that I think that's demonic. Like I think, I think there's more going on there than just, than just empirical scientific. There's, there's an attack on the most vulnerable among us. And I think that is a, a huge, huge problem. Despite the media hype of the early 2000s, just ending it here, embryonic stem cell research has proven to be useless at treating medical conditions. When tested on animals, embryonic stem cells turned into tumors. But yet, we have a political um, and largely medical culture that um, seems to be pouring all the money into that. So embryonic stem cell research is something that Christians should not support. Um, And, yeah, yeah. Any questions? Any questions? I know this has been like big fire hose, little mouth. I'm sorry, some of you are like, uh, uh, what planet am I on now? I'm sorry. Any questions at all? All right, well, a couple concluding thoughts. Um, friends, um, if you find yourself maybe having participated in something that now the Holy Spirit is pricking your conscience saying, oh, that seems to be outside of the bounds of acceptability for a Christian. Uh, friends, praise God that, you know, the Lord, the Lord is, is giving you wisdom and knowledge, you know. Um, James 4, um, to, to him who knows, you know, what sin is and doesn't do it, you know, to him who knows, what's the scripture, I'm forgetting it, to, to him who knows what is right to do and doesn't do it, to him it is sin. So now you've been given this knowledge, and now we can work on obedience, right? Right. So know that there's grace. You know the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is not that one has sin and the other does not, but that the Christian is now taking God's side against their sin rather than just staying in their sin, thinking they're a Christian, fooling themselves, and taking sin's side against God. So know that there's grace. And friends, know that, um, th- that the common grace of medicine is a wonderful thing, but we should always be walking in good biblical counsel, getting the consultation of wise, trusted Christians, medical doctors who are Christians who are coming from a biblical point of view, and submitting our desires before the Lord, checking our hearts, and then moving slowly forward in wisdom. And, And I think that if we do that, if we live in community, if we live under the authority of the Scripture, if we live with the wisdom of good biblical counsel and good Christian medical advice, um, the Lord will lead us in the way that we, we should go. A couple resources here, the Infertility Companion, this book that I mentioned, you can find this on Amazon. Uh, another book by Kutcher and Glan is the Contraception Guidebook, drills down a little bit more specifically in the issue of birth control, God, Marriage, and Family by Andreas Kostenberger, excellent book. And then a couple websites that are really helpful. Uh, the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission um, of the Southern Baptist Convention, ERLC.com, an excellent 
um, kind of growing resource website. has a lot of good articles on it, not just about this, but about all ethics and things that Christians deal with in culture. And then Al Mohler, um, a president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, uh, seminary that we highly respect. Uh, Wayne went to school there. He has a website called albertmohler.com. Lots of great resources about just all sorts of ethical questions that Christians face. I would encourage you to peruse that and really good, helpful stuff. Any questions at all before we conclude? All right, I know this has been a big fire hose, little mouth. I hope it's been helpful. Let me pray. I'll stick around and answer any questions or attempt to, and maybe maybe a, one of you doctors could sort of stand by my, <laughs> me in case I, so I don't give out any terrible advice. <laughs> yeah, Paul. Got me? Yeah. yeah Delaney made a good point. Um, it'd probably be helpful uh, if, you know, certainly if there's folks that are here or in the church that we know of, like the body that are struggling with infertility. Yeah. Uh, that that's that's a that's a well-worn path. Yes. Uh, among people uh, who have had very similar struggles, and so yeah. I'd encourage you to to you know reach out to one of the pastors. Uh, there there are folks here that can walk with you on that journey. So I'd mm. definitely encourage you to do that. Yeah. Amen, Paul. That is excellent. Um, really glad that you said that. And in that vein, let me just read um, Galatians chapter 6 in verse 2, where Paul says, Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So, if you're walking through infertility or difficult issues related to anything here, getting over something that you feel has been a something, a bad decision in the past. The body of Christ, it, we should be here to bear one another's burdens. It's okay to not be okay. But it's not okay to act like you're okay when you're not okay. So great point, Paul. Yeah, Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your kindness to us. Uh, Lord, there's so much to digest, and um, I'm sure we, we just skimmed over some some topics that deserved a much, uh, a much deeper discussion, but Lord, we pray that you'd help us. We pray that you'd take these words and that anything that's been true and helpful spoken, I pray that it would, again, stick fast and help us. Anything that is, was unhelpful or untrue, I pray that it would fall to the ground. And I, I just so appreciate Delaney's admonition that, uh, that uh, Lord, we are a body. I mean, how can the hand say to the ear, I have no need of you? So how can this church or how can anybody in this room that calls Crosspoint home or is a Christian say that they're not really called to bear one another's burdens and, and walk through the trials and difficulties of this life together? And so, Lord, if there is anyone struggling with anything that we've talked about today, infertility or, or shame or guilt over a past decision or, or whatever, Lord, let them know that there is grace and wholeness and healing and wisdom, and support, and burden-bearing grace in the body of Christ. And then, Lord, I pray that we would pursue biblical faithfulness in this area so that we would be a, a more clear display of the good news of the gospel that we so, so dearly confess. Thank you, Lord, for this hour. In Jesus' name, amen. Be blessed, guys.